All right, guys, so we are continuing our series this morning called We Are the Church Through the Book of Ephesians. And I don't know if you recognize this in our society, but the church is not the most popular organization right now to be a part of. And we're aware of that. And what we want to do during this series is we want to get excited about the church and have you get excited about the church. Because I think that there's two possible reactions to being part of the church that are wrong. And one would be that we can become cynics about the church. So we begin to get involved in the church, we get to know some people, or we hear some teaching, or we get to know the worship culture of a church, and we can become cynics. So we can become critics and look at the church and kind of see ourselves as a person who comes to church each week, and our job is to sort of tear it apart, and we might think that we're making it better, but in being critics and cynics, we're bringing kind of a spirit of discouragement. I think the other reaction that we can have to the church is one of apathy. It's like, I kind of want to be a cynic, but maybe I don't have the guts to be a cynic, so instead, I'm going to be apathetic. I'm just going to kind of sit in the background. I'm not going to get too involved with these people. I, I might come on Sunday. I might even go to Connection Group occasionally, but I would never tell people that I'm a part of this church, or I would never get too involved in the church, because that would mean that I could be criticized for what that church is about or what that church is doing. Now, I could say that this is a problem that is very specific to our generation, but I don't think that's true. In fact, C.S. Lewis wrote this in his famous book called The Screwtape Letters. So in The Screwtape Letters, basically you have an older demon who is instructing a younger demon how to tempt Christians. And so this is what the older demon says to the younger demon. He says, surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. So if you can't get people to stop going to church, make them critical of the church. Make them hop from one church to the, to the other, to never get really involved, to never really become part of the family, but instead just sort of keep their distance. Stay on the outside. Oh, I like that church's worship. Oh, I like that church's teaching. Oh, the people there are really nice. The people there are mean. And so what the Apostle Paul is going to show us in this passage is the true cure to this type of thinking. Not apathy, not cynicism, but he says the true cure is prayer. So he says prayer is the path to loving this church family. You want to go, go all in. You stop talking about the church to others and you start talking about the church to God himself. So we see in the, in the passage four prayers for Salt City. The first one is a prayer of thanks to Jesus. We're in Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verses 15 and 16. The Apostle Paul prayed this for the church at Ephesus. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, 
I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Okay, what becomes evident about the church at Ephesus is that there are both great things going on in the church and there are things that need correction. But Paul does not take the attitude of a cynic toward the church at Ephesus. He says to them that each time that he bows his knee to pray for them specifically, that his prayer is not, first of all, a prayer that God would fix something that's wrong with them. It is, first and foremost, a prayer of thanks. And he gives two reasons for that. He says it's because he's heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus. In other words, they have recognized that they are sinful people in need of the help of Jesus. So they have cried out to God for rescue. They've recognized that they're not perfect people in need of a little self-help, but they are deeply broken people in need of a Savior. And so he is thanking God that that has been revealed to them. In other words, that they've been converted to Jesus. And the second thing he says that he's thankful for is their love toward all the saints. So he's looking around at this church family and he's saying, a miracle has happened here. Not just that you have faith in this vertical sense, like you look up to Jesus and you're thankful that he is rescuing you on a day-to-day basis, but you also have this horizontal relationship with other people that causes you to move toward them in their brokenness rather than running away from them. Now, what's interesting about what Paul says here is he says that they have love for all the saints. But later on in the book of Ephesians, he exhorts them to love one another. So which is it, Paul? And I think what we see here is that Paul doesn't expect the church to be perfect. He's able to pray a prayer of thanks for deeply broken people because he understands that Jesus is the true hero. The church is going to be broken until Jesus comes back, but there is real evidence of grace in the church at Ephesus. And as I was thinking about this related to Saul City, I wanted to say thank you to you guys. And as I was praying for this church this week, I was thinking back on the last year, and I think I could say the exact same thing that the Apostle Paul says here. I could say, guys, we have held fast to faith in Jesus Christ in the middle of a global pandemic and civil unrest in our city. And we have been able to say, we trust Jesus together. A year ago, we were wondering, like, is is COVID and all that's going on in the city going to fracture our church and pull us apart? And I can say, with confidence that God has begun a good work in this church family because of the love that is being demonstrated among all of you saints. And so I want to say, I am thankful to God for this church. I remember when Salt City Church was just a calling on my life five years ago. And when God first asked me to step out, to move from Iowa to Minneapolis to plant this church, and I was asking him 
that he would do this miracle of bringing lost people to salvation and that he would bring together one unified body in Jesus. And by his grace, he has done it. And my prayer is that he would continue that good work. And I think what we're reminded of here is often what we don't need more of in our life is more challenge. What we need is more encouragement and more thanks. And I think all of us can just sort of take a deep breath and we can look around this room and we can say, thank you, Jesus. This is amazing. Thank you that a real church, a family of God, has been raised up in this crooked and perverse generation. And we are thankful for that. Now, as I was thinking about this last year, I feel like in a lot of ways, what's been surprising to me is that all of the turmoil has brought us closer together. I I think we're kind of like the disciples on the boat with Jesus. Do you guys remember the scene? Jesus is sleeping on the boat. And all the disciples are freaking out because there's a storm. And then Jesus gets up in the boat and he says, peace, be still. And I've always just imagined the disciples after the storm is over, not only being thankful to Jesus, but I just imagine them like hugging each other and feeling so much closer to each other. And I feel like that's where we're at right now. And I want us to remember how amazing it is that we're in this room together. You remember that, right, during COVID, how you were like missing church and you wanted to be in this room. And now we're here and I think we've been doing this long enough again that we've maybe forgotten again how amazing what we're doing is. So, okay, my application for every point is actually just gonna be to stop and pray. So I want you to stop and pray with me on that point, just this prayer of thanks to Jesus. So Father God, it's for this reason, because of the faith in Jesus in this room and the love that's represented here that we bow our heads and we say, thank you. As the world looks on with scorn and disdain and is pointing out the imperfection in the church, we look up to you and we say, this is a miracle. This is amazing. Thank you for saving us and for calling us into community and on to mission together. And we're not impressed with ourselves, God, but we would be off if we didn't recognize your grace in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the second thing that the Apostle Paul prays for the church at Ephesus that I'm praying for our church is prayer for knowledge of Jesus. Okay, so he moves from a prayer of thanks and he's basically saying, I want more and more of what you already have to be evidenced in your life. And so he picks up the prayer in verse 17. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Okay, so here's the interesting thing. Paul has spent the previous 14 verses in one 
breathless sentence acknowledging how awesome Jesus is. He's been turning our affections and our attention to the work that Jesus has done on our behalf in redeeming us, choosing us before the foundation of the world, loving us with this incredibly relentless, all-encompassing love. And now he says that he's praying that we would understand his love. Okay, so we can fall into one of two ditches. We can think that the way that we grow in our relationship with Jesus is simply through vigorous study. So we study theology. We look at the first 14 verses of Ephesians. We read systematic theologies. We listen to sermons. And we grow in our knowledge. And that's true. That's part of it. Others of us have maybe more of a mystical bent. And so we're the ones who sort of put our Bibles aside and we go on prayer nature walks. And we go and we pray and we ask that God would fill us with his spirit and we ask God that he would change us and we ask that God would be at work in our lives. And what Paul would do is he would step in and say, both of those are false dichotomies. What you need to grow in your relationship with God is both knowledge and spiritual insight. And so, although the Ephesians have all the right answers theologically, that doesn't mean that they have embraced the truth at the level of their heart. And so Paul says, if you want your knowledge about God to go from your head to your heart, the way to get it to travel that short distance is through prayer. And so he's praying for this Ephesian church, and he's saying, guys, I want you to know what you know. I want it to change you at the deepest part of your being. I don't want you to just know that God loves you. I want you to know that God loves you. So that it melts away your need for the affirmation of the world or the idols that are in your life. And that Jesus Christ himself embraces you on a daily basis and becomes all that you need. Have you guys ever had a moment in your life where this becomes incredibly clear to you, where something that you know becomes something that you know. I remember one time I was leading our college ministry called Salt Company at the University of Iowa, and I went on a fall retreat, and I was sitting in the back of the room at the fall retreat, and the speaker was giving a very simple gospel presentation. And one of the things that he was talking about was the love that God the Father has for us. And I remember hearing him talk about that. And it's like all of a sudden, kind of suddenly, unexpectedly, during that time, as I was sitting there, I mean, honestly, mostly praying that the students would know what he's talking about and understand that. My heart just melted, and, and I became an absolute mess. 
as I began to know something that I thought I already knew. Just that basic truth that God loves me. How life-changing would that be if we all left this morning knowing the simple truth of the gospel that God loves us as we are, not as we're trying to be. Would you just bow your head with me and pray that that knowledge would go from head to heart? Father God, we uh, just pause here to recognize that we are complicated people that it's possible for us to have known something our whole life, but not really know it. And I pray that this would be a moment where we would understand your love for us in a different way. Maybe we've been singing the kids' song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, our whole lives, though we've never really known. Holy Spirit, ask that you would come. Amen. All right, the third thing that the Apostle Paul prays for not just a prayer of thanks to Jesus and a prayer of knowledge of Jesus, but a prayer for hope in Jesus. Verse 18, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, when the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about a vague hope. Like, I really hope that my parents give me this for Christmas. He's talking about a sure expectation. Based on what Jesus has done in the past, in his death on the cross, and his promise of a glorious future based on his resurrection from the dead, we can have a sure expectation that what he says is true about our future hope. And he describes it here as the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And again, what we understand is that Paul has been unpacking our hope already in these first 14 verses. Just last week, I talked about the hope that we have in Jesus. And once again, Paul is saying it's possible to know what your hope is without that hope really invading your heart. It's possible to have head knowledge of your hope without having heart knowledge of your hope. One of the ways that one of my good friends describes the hope that we have in Jesus is it's as if the, first, the best three moments of your life were played on repeat over and over and over again. Jesus has good for us in the future. One of the biggest lies that we believe about 
Jesus is that he is out to ruin our lives rather than to make it better. And Jesus says unequivocally in his word that he is out to make your life unbelievable forever. So here's, here's the biblical picture we get of what life is like. Have you ever been on a trip before where everything seems to be going wrong? Where you miss your flight and the food makes you sick on the airplane and you miss the connecting flight and the weather report's not looking good and, you know, so on and so forth. We've all had these trips where it just seems like everything is going wrong. Okay, but if you can somehow know in the midst of everything going wrong that that trip is going to turn out to be the best vacation you've ever been on, then it would change your perspective of what's happening to you along the way. Here's what the Apostle Paul's saying. Your life is like that trip where everything's going wrong. I don't know what the most beautiful place you've ever been to in your life is. Mine is Santorini, Greece. Has anyone ever been there? It's unbelievable. It's so awesome. But it's basically like this volcano blew up in the Mediterranean Sea thousands of years ago. And so there's just these sheer cliffs going down to the ocean. And the volcano was so unbelievably huge that the lava ran on the bottom of the ocean all the way to Egypt. And you just go there and, and you're looking out over the, the horizon. You're seeing the sun and it's just beautiful glistening off the water. And here's what Paul's saying is that your bad trip here on earth is going to lead to the most incredible experience of your life if you just hold on to the hope that we have in Jesus. What a good word from Rob. Let's, let's bow our heads and pray that the hope that we have in Jesus would be more real to us than our current circumstances. Jesus, we talk about the hope that we have in you from the stage all the time. I, I think that a lot of us have knowledge of the hope but we are so caught up so often in everything that is going wrong that we are failing to see that this is a bumpy ride to a glorious place. And so I'm asking that you would reveal our hope to us. that you would allow us to see beyond this present moment to our glorious future in such a way that it transforms us now, that we would give up living for now and trying to make this world into heaven. And instead, we would try to take people with us from this world to heaven. And I know that's only possible through you, God. I, I can't convince 
myself or anyone else to really root their hope in you. And so would you do that, Jesus? Amen. All right, the last thing that Paul prays for, for the church at Ephesus, that I'm praying for our church, is to a prayer for power from Jesus. So we've got this hope. We're on this bumpy journey in life. And Paul recognizes that we need power to persevere and take the next step. So verses 19 through 23 say this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, the, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this is interesting. Paul spends a short amount of time giving thanks, a short amount of time praying for knowledge, a short amount of time praying for hope, and dedicates the most time to praying for power. Right. There's a frank recognition in the proportions that life is hard and that we can't do it on our own. And so what he's saying is even though you may be filled with hope, you may be filled with knowledge, and you may be filled with thanks, you are still going to wake up tomorrow, your back's going to hurt, your kids are going to be disobedient, School is going to be difficult. You're going to have diapers to change. And life is going to continue to be hard. And so that means that we don't just need hope, we don't just need knowledge, we need power. And sometimes it's going to take all we've got, even with the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us, to take the next step. So Paul's praying, and he's specifically praying that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. God's power is greater than your weakness. Whatever you have blown up in your mind and saying, this is so big and so great that I can't face it in my own strength is only a half-truth. It's true that you can't face it in your own strength, but it's not true that you can't face it in God's strength. And he wants to fill you with his power so that you can move forward in faith. And he reminds us whose power this is. It is the working of his great might. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. But it not only raised Jesus from the dead... It seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. And it not only seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, but it made him the king over and the head of 
the church. Okay, so here's the picture that we've got. Jesus' head is in heaven and his body is on earth. Okay, so one of the objections that we might have to this prayer internally is, does God really care about me enough to empower me to live my life in a way that honors him? And we can have this attitude that God doesn't really care about me and he doesn't really want to help me, so we don't go to him for help, but we go to everyone and everything else for help because we view God as unwilling to help us. And so this picture helps us to combat that lie. The picture we get here is that Jesus is the head of the church, the head is in heaven, and the body is on earth. Let me ask you this question. If your head didn't hurt, but your body did, would you be indifferent to that? Oh, it's just my body. At least it's not my head. No. By the very nature of things, your head cares about your body. It's just obvious. And the way that God has set things up is that the church has become his body by grace. He cares as much about your well-being as he cares about his own well-being. He is as willing as willing can be. I was reminded of this, so this week my father-in-law stayed with us and he was out doing some chores in the backyard and he uh, fell down by accident didn't look like that bad of a fall but a short time later ended up in urgent care with him and it looks like he tore his rotator cuff bummer it's like a six-month recovery but we were talking and in some conversations that he had had with some other people he talked to somebody who knew someone who had a rotator cuff injury, and we're talking like, my father-in-law can move his arm like this far this way and this far this way. And he knew somebody who had had the same rotator cuff injury and just because of their fear of surgery or whatever, decided to never get it fixed. And we're just going, you crazy? Like a six-month recovery to get this thing fixed? And what we're both saying is basically like, I care about my body way too much to not do that. Like, you would have to be crazy not to do that. And here's what Paul's saying. Jesus isn't crazy. When his body's hurting and his body needs power and his body needs help, he is going to help you. He is willing to give you the same strength that raised him from the dead to get through your daily grind in a way that glorifies and honors him. So no matter how bad you're doing right now, you're not doing as bad as Jesus was doing when he was dead. And God had enough power to raise Jesus from the dead and to seat him in the heavenly places. So you're not dead. So God has enough power to help you with whatever you're dealing with. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray that God would give us this power. Band, you guys can go ahead and come up. This is the last prayer. Jesus, we um, are often bothered and anxious about the things that are going on in our lives.
and thank you that you have not just given us hope and given us knowledge that you love us, but you've given us power, immeasurably great power, the power that raised you from the dead. And we need that this week. We don't just need knowledge of that. We need an experience of that. We need you to live your life through us. We need you to animate this body of believers this week. Would you help us? Would you strengthen us? Would you comfort and strengthen and help that person who is facing the most difficult thing that they've ever faced in their life this week? And before they came, they didn't even want to walk through the doors because they thought, if I don't get a word of encouragement, I might just give up on this Christianity thing. Would you help us to take the next step in obedience by your great might? In Jesus' name.